0: Hey, I want to thank you guys again for being here and uh, sharing your stories, even as I prayed. You know, it's powerful to hear what God's doing in individual lives. And this morning we are in in the middle of a series in Deuteronomy, and I couldn't help but think, you know, our, our series theme for, again, children's ministry, people in the room, is a framework of love for a flourishing people. And, you know, I was thinking about that theme and, and even those motions in light of uh, Adult and Teen Challenge and the stories that you've been telling. Because in many ways, what you have stepped into, what you've submitted yourselves to, is a program or a structure, a framework that is motivated and driven by the love of God and the love for each other as a brotherhood. And to what end? That your lives would Flourish. That you would experience that flourishing again in your lives or maybe as some of you shared even for the first time that you really feel that, that love. Because ultimately what we're talking about is the gospel and that's what we see in the book of Deuteronomy. We've, we've said that we're seeking to see Jesus on every page and it's not hard because he is there. Because the Old Testament, the message of the Old Testament is the coming of Jesus in the gospel itself. So we're excited to get into this morning's message. Our, our message is entitled this morning, The Grace of Known Expectations. And what's kind of at stake in the text that we're looking at, and Moses draws out, is this idea that, that uh, you know, as we think about God's law, even today, right, the rules of God, his laws, his do's and don'ts, the thing that God says, there's sort of a permeating attitude, certainly in the culture, or maybe even early, early in your Christian life, or if you've become uh, sort of lost sight of the gospel in your life, where the rules, the law of God is this oppressive kind of killjoy fun sucking thing and what Moses says as he talks over and over and over about the statutes and the ordinances of God is that no, God's known expectations telling you who he is and what's expected of you is a tremendous grace gift of his meaning it's both undeserved and it's generous and lavish and he'll contrast that uh, sort of with the gods of, of the time Knowing what God expects of us is a great gift. And so Moses is talking to the Israelites. He's on the, uh, they're on the cusp of entering the promised land. Uh, those of you who've been with us, remember that this is the second generation of those to come out of Egypt. And Moses has walked them through the failures of their parents, their disobedience, to enter to, uh, not entering the promised land. And he's compelled them to two things, essentially. Number one, that God is faithful, even in spite of that. That here they are again, with a chance to go into the promised land. And number two, he exhorts them, Don't disobey this time. Follow the Lord. Go into the promised land. Take the good land that he's given you. And so that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of Deuteronomy 4. We're going to read the first 14 verses this week. And Zach will take us into the next section next week. Moses writes, Now Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am teaching you to follow, so that you may live, enter, and take possession of the Lord your God your fathers is giving you. You must not add anything to what I command you or take anything away from it, so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God I am giving you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed every one of you who followed Baal of Peor. But you have remained faithful to the Lord your God, are all alive today. Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them, for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. And when they hear about these statutes, they will say, This great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it, as the Lord our God is near to us? Whenever we call to Him. And what great nation has righteous laws, uh, statutes, and ordinances like this entire law that I have set before you today? Only be on your guard. Diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. "'Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. "'The day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, "'the Lord said to me, "'Assemble the people before me, "'and I will let them hear my words, "'so that they may learn to fear me "'all the days they live on the earth "'and may instruct their children. "'You came and stood near at the base of the mountain, "'a mountain blazing with fire into the heavens "'and enveloped in a totally black cloud. "'Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire. "'You kept hearing the sound of the words, "'but didn't see a form. "'There was only a voice.' He declared his covenant to you. He commanded you to follow the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two stone tablets. At that time, the Lord commanded me to teach you statutes and ordinances for you to follow in the land you are about to cross into and possess. Moses challenges the people to do three things. Number one, to listen and look. At the statutes and ordinances of the Lord. He uses that phrase five or six times. In other words, pay attention to the law. Pay attention to what I have taught and am teaching you. Secondly, he says to carefully follow those statutes and ordinances. Obey them. And thirdly, he encourages them to teach them. And and, and not to forget, but to actually teach them perpetually to your children and grandchildren. We're going to look at that this morning through the lens of essentially three P's. That we are to, uh, as we look at the word of God here this morning, we're to pay attention. Number two, that we are to practice the principles of God. And thirdly, we're to proclaim the message of God. So the first thing is to listen, look, or pay attention. And really, Moses draws out three things about the law itself. His first thing is that, is that the law is sufficient. He says, do not add anything to it and do not take anything away from it. The law as God has given it to you is exactly how he intended. And the statutes, generally speaking, were designed to govern their conduct. And the judgments were designed to govern situations and circumstances that would come up. The law was complete as God gave it to them. And I like what Earl Cowan says in his uh, commentary. He says, it was sufficient to guard their lives and guarantee their possession of the land. I love that language, that it's the idea that it, it guards their lives, and what's sort of in that idea is guard their lives really from themselves, right? And their propensity to rebel and to sin, but also to guarantee their inheritance into the promised land. And isn't this essentially what we have in Jesus, right? As Jesus goes to the cross and pays for our sins and then advocates for us uh, for all eternity, that, that, that we have an older brother in Christ who advocates and intercedes for us, who guards us from ourselves. But also because he was God in the flesh and he paid that sin debt, but then raised from the grave, defeating death and sin and the evil one, he is the guarantor. And he gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit on that, that our eternity, our inheritance is sure. It is a done deal as we trust in him. So the law is sufficient, first point. Secondly, the law is to obey. This might be the strongest point Moses makes in the passage. The law is sufficient, it's it's to govern you, it's to uh, anticipate every situation you might come into, but make no mistake, it is to be obeyed. And Moses uses the incidents of Baal Peor in Numbers chapter 25. I'm gonna gloss that a little bit this morning for the sake of time. But if you read Numbers 25, God's people do exactly what Moses taught them not to do. They pair up with Moabites and Midianites and they begin this idolatrous worship that involves all kinds of sexual practices. And they become corrupted and the Lord's anger burns against them and he judges them. And that's the thrust of this verse is that Moses says, Remember, Baal Peor, that the Lord judged you and destroyed every one of you who disobeyed. And God's word is to, be, is to be obeyed. And this incident of Baal Peor is highlighted again and again in the Old Testament as a reminder... That God is a God who gives us his law but expects us to obey it. Now we're on the other side of the cross and so Jesus has been the one who's perfectly obeyed it. But even as we heard in the testimonies this morning that God calls us to walk in him. We'll look at that in just a moment. But Baal Peor becomes something that's recounted over and over again in the Old Testament. Psalm 106 speaks of it. And then Hosea 9 talks about it. But I want to focus on the lead up to what Hosea says many years later about Baal Peor. Hosea 9 says this. This is God speaking of his people. I discovered Israel like grapes in the wilderness. This is the Lord talking about his people. I wanna stop there. Think about that image. Now we're we're not in a a desert climate here, but imagine that you were and, and you were in a climate and there was devoid of food and water and you were parched and you come upon this just naturally growing vine that is filled with clusters of grapes that are plump and juicy and ripe. And as you eat them, your blood sugar returns to where it should be. This is what God is saying about his people whom he loves so much. He discovered them like grapes in the wilderness. He uses another metaphor. He says, I saw your ancestors like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season. Fig trees are one of those few plants that bears fruit over and over again, multiple times. It's intimated that God saw his people as his treasured possession, as we know in, his, in Exodus chapter 19, that they would bear fruit. And that was his, certainly his desire for them. And then there's the but, Right? He says, but they went to Baal Peor. They consecrated themselves. That is, they set themselves aside for shame. And they became abhorrent like the thing that they loved. There's a huge lesson for us in this too. What Moses is impressing upon his people is that they're settling for a counterfeit. That God gives us himself and yet they go after other gods. We know from other scriptures like Hebrews 6 and 12 that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And God's will, God's law is to be obeyed. You see the defiling of the people of God's minds away from the Lord led to the defiling of their bodies against him in rebellion. Something that was adrift gave birth to full on willful rebellion. And in this particular passage that has to do with a essentially wanton sexual sin, I have to, I, we can't escape this passage without talking about that particularly in our culture and our, our time. And I'm going I'm to speak a little bit more pointedly this morning to the, to the gentlemen in the room and those online. Not that women cannot participate in sexual sin, but this tends to be a guy thing. And the lesson for us is that what begins in our minds is something that will, if indulged, it manifests itself in our lives physically. Listen to what D.A. Carson says about the mind. He says, Imagination is a God-given gift, but if it is fed dirt through the eye, it will be dirty. All sin not the least of of which sexual sin begins with imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance in the pursuit of a kingdom of righteousness. What we turn over and over in our minds, gentlemen, becomes something that will eventually cause us to act on it. Most obvious in our culture and our time is pornography. But it could be any, any other of a host of things. And you can certainly apply this in other categories of sin. It's interesting that the word meditation in the scripture is the same idea. It's that we take scripture and we turn it over and over in our minds. And so we're going to get to that in a second in our application. You see the third thing. God's law is sufficient. God's law is to be obeyed, O Israel, O me. But God's law is for our good. Listen to verse one, to what Moses says. It's so easy to read past it and to gloss it. Moses says, listen to the statutes and ordinances I'm teaching you to follow today so that you may live so that you may live, enter, and take possession. If we bring verse 8 of chapter 1 into it, so you may take possession of the land that is good, the land that is a gift that God has given us. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the land that is uh, metaphorically is, is pictured as a land overflowing with milk and honey, a land that is rich, a land that has vineyards and olive groves, Uh, bursting with fruit, a land that has livestock, but is nearly devoid of predators and, and wild beasts. This is God's good gift to his people. And he gives them his law, those statutes and ordinances, and calls them to obey them because his law is for our good. So if we're talking about a biblical sexual ethic, as God has designed us to be married, a man and woman for life, and all those other expressions of sexuality that are outside of it that we look at and we say, man, it feels like a killjoy. God's saying, it is for your good. If we think about the practices that God calls us to in business, uh, that, we, that we perform a business at the highest level of ethics, what God calls us to is for our good. That brother reminded me after the service that the scripture says, be not drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What God desires for us is so much better. His law is sufficient, it is to be obeyed, and it is for our good. So God's people were to to know, they were to to listen, to look, to pay attention. How do we do that today? Well, we know the grace of God's, uh, uh, the grace of known expectations by reading and studying his word. We don't just have the Torah, we have the entire council of the biblical record. And in the King James, it tells us to study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman or workwoman, as it were, uh, who who rightly divides the word of truth, who parses and searches and diligently seeks the word of truth. Not just to know of God, but to know God. That's how we do that today. And so I wonder this morning, what would it look like for you to set your alarm tomorrow, 15 minutes earlier? What would it look like for you to set your alarm 15 minutes earlier tomorrow, and, and the next day, and the next day? And, and to begin your day, to get up, you know, with your coffee or your water or your protein bar or your banana or whatever it is that you do, right? But 15 minutes earlier to sit down and to just pray for five minutes and say, God, speak to me this morning as I read just a few verses in your word. And then for 10 minutes to read his word. What would happen to you our church, the community of Christ. I will not be offended if you set your alarm right now on your phone for 15 minutes earlier tomorrow. If you're at home, you have the luxury of, we can't see that, you won't distract us. But really, this is how we do that today. This is how we pay attention. We read and study His Word. Well, it's more than that, of course, it's that we practice it. And so Moses even says to his people, carefully follow the statutes and ordinances of the Lord. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan theologian, said it this way. He said, hearing must be in order to doing. I love just the way that they spoke that then or wrote. And knowledge in order to practice. Practice the principle. Listen carefully, Moses says. Or carefully follow, rather. And Moses, as he writes this, he does so that his people would obey for the sake of the nations that are watching. But he uses this curious word, uh, or at least Matthew Henry does in in reflecting on this passage, the word practice. You know, I think of, um, you know, the the old adage that practice is what lawyers and doctors do, right? And you go, practice? That doesn't sound like it's a good thing. Uh, Other life-isms come to mind. Things like, because I just get ADD on this stuff, like, why do we park on a driveway and drive on a parkway? And there's probably others that you can think of. Um, But I digress. Nonetheless, some of you are just catching it now. Nonetheless, Israel is called to be who they are. Who God has called them to be. And they're called to do so for the sake of their witness. Notice that even in the Old Testament, God doesn't just care. uh, His care isn't just for the Israelites. They're called to to do so for their witness. Verse 6, carefully follow them, the statutes and ordinances, for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. He goes on. When they hear about these statutes, they will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. And he goes on and talks about God and his law. But obedience is a form of witness. Obedience is a form of witness. When, when we obey God in those areas we talked about earlier and others that, that I certainly haven't thought of all of them, something is different. And people notice, whether it be in uh, you know, how you walk out your relationships, whether it be how you walk out business, whatever it is, if you behave differently than the world, it stands out. And it draws attention, not ultimately to yourself, but to the Lord, that there's something different about you. And that's what Moses' heart was for his people. Matter of fact, this idea of obedience and witness is consistent through Scripture. And if we look at uh, the entirety of the Old Testament, you'll find that obedience... Certainly yields worship and worship obedience, not linear, but obedience and worship and wisdom and witness. It's all interrelated. Listen to how the psalmist says it in Psalm 119. Zach touched on this passage when we introduced Deuteronomy. He says this, and notice that those four elements all mixed together. He says, How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts." And he continues on uh, in verse 103, he says, "'How sweet is your word to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth.'" And he continues, worship and witness and wisdom are all interrelated as we begin to walk out Obedience, And so Moses calls his people not just to pay attention, but to carefully follow, that they would bear witness to the nations. Truly there is grace in the known expectations that God gives us in his word, not only of of our behavior, but of who he is, of our sin problem and of what he's done about it. And so Moses asks these sort of two hypothetical, rhetorical questions uh, that the people bearing witness might ask. You know, he says this, he says, what great nation has a God who is near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call to him. Answer none other than this people. But listen to what he says about the law that completely lines up with the Psalmist in Psalm 119. What great nation has righteous laws like this entire law I set before you today. Moses like the Psalmist sees the law as this thing to be treasured, this gift that God has given his people. And in this particular time, in the ancient Near East, he's likely contrasting that with the gods of the nations all around them. You see, the gods of the nations all around Israel worshipped a pantheon of gods. And they were gods, small g, that were unknowable, they were sort of precarious and, and would be viewed as being uh, sort of preoccupied and, and too busy to care about the needs of, you know, the lowly people. And so the, the peoples around Israel would try, try as they might in all kinds of ways to appease the gods. That it might rain or that they might get, their crops might grow or their cattle might be fertile. And they never knew whether they were being successful or not. And along comes Israel and this God who chooses this one people and Moses says, this is a God who tells you exactly what he expects. And it's in contrast to the gods of the nations. It's fascinating stuff. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, there are two uh, sort of instances where this is highlighted and they're actually t- probably the two most sarcastic passages in the Bible. Did you know there was sarcasm in the scripture? The first is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you don't know the story, Mos- Elijah is confronting 450 prophets of Baal. And he challenges them to, you know, this is like the ancient world's version of the Old West, right? They, they're going to put this sacrifice on Mount Carmel. And the God to consume the sacrifice is the winner, so to speak. Being a little trite, but it's, it's even more than that. And so the prophets of Baal, they begin to call on Baal and they start to cut themselves and they start to chant and they chant louder. And Elijah, in response to this, he starts to mock them and and to mock uh, Baal. It's almost verbatim to the idea of, hey, chant louder. Perhaps he's taking a nap and so he can't hear you. Or maybe he went on a trip and so he's unable to hear you. Keep chanting. He's taunting them. If you know the story, by the way, Elijah prays this simple reverent prayer. And God shows up and consumes everything. It's a powerful story. Amen. Second, second is not a story. It's a prophecy of Isaiah. I won't read the whole thing, but Isaiah is talking about uh, the, the, the futility, and if I could use the word, the stupidity of, of idolatry. And we're talking about like physical idols. So he talks about the metal worker who makes an idol. Then he talks about the woodworker who makes an idol. We'll just pick up one verse here, Verse 15. Uh, A little bit of verse 14, he said, he cuts down a cedar for his use, verse 15, and a person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and he warms himself and kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. Isaiah's like, how stupid are you? You go into the forest, you see the tree, you cut it down, you cut it in half, you use half of it to heat your home and to cook your food. And the other half you carve into a God and you bow down to it. What's wrong with you? But this was the understanding of the gods at the time in which Moses is writing in the Old Testament and so on and so forth. And again, here comes a God, the grace of known expectations, who says who he is, who tells us who we are and who gives us a set of expectations. You know, I, I would venture to say that the gods of our time aren't necessarily that different. You think about in our culture today, the god of science. Now let me say this. The Bible, or specifically Christianity and science, are not at all mutually exclusive. Not at all. In fact, it's it's a reverence to the Bible in worship that in many cases led uh, folks in pre-enlightenment, enlightenment Enlightenment times to to launch all the different disciplines of the sciences out of a reverence and a worship for God and an appreciation for his creation, for our bodies, for the cosmos that led them to explore and and begin the sciences. It's only in modern times that science really became a God unto itself and it's a God, again, small g, that is unknowable, that's cold and data-driven, ambiguous, I mean as a for instance, look at our response as a planet to the pandemic over the last 18 months. Like measure the 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 response and how it's changed. Now, some will point to the hypocrisy of governments or even physicians and others, and that may be part of it. But it has much more to do with the fact that science by definition is observation. It's fluid. It's not unchanging. And it's so while it can be a very helpful tool, it is not meant to be a God or a savior no matter what field or discipline of science. But the God of the Bible and the law that he gives us is a firm foundation. It does not change like shifting shadows, scripture tells us. And I wonder what is the thing in your life that you've banked on that has let you down. We heard that in some of the testimonies this morning. We do not serve a God who is unknowable. And the way in which we know him most is in Jesus. Jesus himself is God made Known. Listen to what Jesus says to Philip. You know, Philip raises this statement in John 14. We looked at it when we looked at John's gospel a while ago. He says, He says to Jesus, he says, Show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus responds to him with I think a, a twinge of exasperation and says, Have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe me for the works themselves. And as we looked at back when we studied John's gospel, it is both the words and the works of Jesus that are the words and works of God himself. Jesus is God made known. He's the fulfillment that everything that Deuteronomy is hinting at. And so the obedience that Israel's called to, this statutes and ordinances of God is a God who reveals himself that countercultural to their time and to our time. Not a God who is unknowable, but a God who calls a particular people, who moves among them, as we've heard over the last couple of weeks, who leads them and who calls them to walk with him. And this is the same for us in Jesus Christ. So if to know the grace of known expectations, we need to read and study his word. How do we like Israel bear witness to who Jesus is? We reveal the grace of known expectations by obeying and living the call that he's put on our life. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, as you obey, the world will see. 1 Peter 2.9 has been a popular scripture in this series. I'm going to read it again. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. That is, this is Exodus 19, Israel language that Peter borrows and puts on us in Christ. Why, Peter? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. What we've heard this morning in testimony and song What we're doing as a church, many of the things that that you do throughout your week as you meet, as you bear witness, is to be a light in a dark place. And we're living in a time that I believe is increasing in darkness. I don't mean that in a doomsday kind of way. You know, I had the privilege over the last week, uh, we got to spend time together as elders, staff, and our corporate team, our finance team, really the business side of GBC, uh, for about two days and then immediately following that I drove to New Hampshire and spent time with about 14 or 15 other pastors from around New England big churches, small churches but all churches that were focused on the gospel and advancing the kingdom and, and first of all I came home with my like, brain hurting because it was like as we worshiped together as we prayed together as we brainstormed together as we told each other stories in both of those contexts it was like fire hose treatment right? it's just so much But I also came home with two other impressions. One, that the times that we're living in are indeed darker. And number two, that the gospel is shining brighter than ever. And that that God is calling his church together, that he's winnowing false doctrines and he's He's calling us to just a deeper clarity of that white light of the gospel in the dark times that we're living in. And I came away just absolutely excited for what God's doing. And we're going to share some of that in the new year. It's an exciting time. And I wonder, what is it in your life that as you look at the world around you to not be hung up in the darkness, what is God doing? What is he calling you to in obedience to be that light? Well, that brings us to the last thing that Moses tells his people to do. He says, don't forget. Don't forget and teach. I want to read the verse. Verse nine, it says this. Only be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen And so they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Moses says, remember in order to teach. Psalm 145 says, one generation will commend your works to the next and tell of your mighty acts. That's what God is calling his people to do, what Moses is teaching. And he specifically draws them back to the instance at Mount Horeb, to that moment in which God formalizes his covenant relationship with his people. They come to the foot of this mountain and there's earthquake and trembling and lightning and fire and smoke and pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. And God, in that moment, he formalizes his covenant by doing what? He engraves the law on two physical stone tablets. And those physical stone tablets are placed into a physical ark of the the covenant, the presence of God. And the ark of the covenant is placed into a physical Physical tent, the tabernacle that is then pitched and put in the center of the camp of Israel. That as is God's people uh, oriented around Him, look to the tent and the Ark of the Covenant and the stone tablets. They will know and they will remember that moment when God formalized His loving covenant relationship with them. And He says, "Don't forget, remember." And then teach them, meaning the statutes and ordinances. He reminds them of their story and the genesis of his relationship to move them to teach his law. And what that means for future generations. And So I wonder this morning, what is your Mount Horeb moment? What is the moment in your life where you knew about God and you knew about Jesus or whatever the case. But you've, you had that moment where you said, this is the moment when my covenant relationship with God has begun. Because we don't have stone tablets. There's no Ark of the Covenant here. Jeremiah and Ezekiel told us that when Jesus comes, that God will write his laws on our hearts. That's what you heard from our brothers this morning. When is that moment for you? In my own life, it was in August of 1990. It was also on a mountain, but in New Hampshire, in the rain. I'd given my life to Jesus as a young boy, but this was the moment when that relationship was, was formalized, that covenant relationship between me and Jesus, someday I'll tell you the full story. But nonetheless, what is it for you? Because you see, final application here, to remember the grace of known expectations, we need to teach and proclaim his gospel. We, teach our, we tell our story in order to teach and proclaim his gospel. Give a little clarity to that. R.C. Sproul has said, your testimony, your personal story is not the gospel. It is pre-evangelism. It's a warm-up to tell his story. What is the gospel? It's that you were lost apart from Christ, but God loved you and he sent Jesus who lived for you, who died for you and paid for your sins and then rose from the grave and he's coming back for those who have trusted in him. So we tell our story, our Mount Horeb, to tell the statutes and ordinances, the great grace of Jesus Christ. Paul says in financial terms if you will. Monetary terms. He says for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though his, he was rich. For your stakes he became poor. That through his poverty. Taking on sin on himself. You might become rich. Amen. I wonder this morning. What does your Mount Horeb moment look like? And if you have that moment. What would it look like for you to tell your story. So that you could tell his story. I'm going to transition us to our conclusion this morning. I'm going to ask Johnny to come out. Johnny's going to lead us in a very simple final song this morning as we conclude. So remember this morning that God giving us his rules, his law, his expectations for us is a profoundly good thing. He is a good God. And by way of review, that we are called to pay attention to the word of God. That is, we read, we study, we listen, we digest that we might know his expectations. Who he is, who we are, what he has done. That we are to practice the principles of God. We respond, we obey, we trust, we engage with him. And finally, that we are to proclaim the very message of God. We bear witness through our obedience. We bear witness through worship. We bear witness through telling our stories so that we can tell His story. So we're going to conclude at this time and Johnny's going to sing a very simple song. And I will invite you in these moments to consider your Mount Horeb moment. Maybe you don't have that moment in your life. Maybe you don't have a time when you remember this is the day I gave my life to Jesus. It might be that today is that day. That you'll look back on Halloween Sunday 2021 and say, that was the day where all of a sudden all the stuff I kind of knew about God came down to a head and I understood the gospel itself and what Jesus had done for me and I gave my life to him. And so here's what we're gonna do. Johnny's gonna sing these words this morning. I have decided to follow Jesus. And I'm gonna invite you as Johnny sings to get up out of your seats and to proclaim with your feet and to come forward and give your life to Jesus. During the same time, some of the elders and some of their wives and other staff members and spouses will also come forward. So you're not getting up by yourself and you're not up here by yourself. If you're online, you can type in the chat, I have decided to follow Jesus, somebody pray with me. And someone will. And if you've never done that this morning, I wanna invite you to do that as I close in prayer. And the second thing, maybe you're a believer in Jesus, but you're deciding anew. Number two, to practice the principles of God. Get up and come down front, we'd love to pray with you. Let's pray. God, we give you this morning, Lord, would you help us? God, would you help us to pay attention to your word, to practice the principles you've given us and the freedom that you've given us in Jesus and to proclaim your message, even through telling our story. Pray for those this morning that will decide to follow you for the first time today. Pray for those of you that are starting over in your grace. In Jesus' name.